Greetings from Covenant Community of LJ, Georgia. We want to thank you for taking the time to listen to these messages God has provided to our fellowship from His Word. May He bless you richly as you seek Him. We'd like to invite you to be with us in person someday soon. And for information on that, visit us at covenantcommunitylj.com. And now, let's open up God's Word. So 
you know, both the Jews and the Greeks, they were worshiping the same God. And think about these practicing Jews, all right? They had come out of Judaism and begun to follow Christ. They'd accepted Jesus as the Messiah, received him by grace through faith. And so in doing that, suddenly they have a lot of questions to be answered about the way they used to do things and the way they were going to do things under grace, the way we're going to do things in this new covenant. And so uh, this book is sorting so much of this out. But Judaism, let's understand for a second, had taught them that the path to acceptance and in peace and certainly blessing with God came through the observance of the law. And the law they had been given it was through Moses, and that was presented during the Mosaic Covenant. Next week, we'll get into a little bit more of that, so I don't want to go too deep there, but to be honest, sometimes we overstate how the way that the law works here. Sometimes we overstate things and say that grace is entirely new to the New Testament, that, that grace was something that suddenly showed up in the New Testament that hadn't been there before, but it really isn't. Salvation has always been by grace through faith since the very beginning. The Old Testament Jews knew they needed to be forgiven, and that's really where the sacrificial system came in. And that sacrificial system pointed ahead. It was a foreshadowing of Christ who was to come. The lambs and bulls and goats had no power to deal with sin, but it was a foreshadowing of the one who was to come. And by faith, they obeyed God in observing the law through keeping that sacrificial system and God used it as a foreshadowing to teach them of what was going to happen. But that was how they uh, learned about how to make atonement for their sin. And it was a, it really pointed to this covenant that God had made with Moses. Now, they were completely immersed inside of this way of thinking, right? This way of eating, this way of resting. Right? Everything about their lives revolved around keeping the law. But here's the, here's the switch. In the New Testament, when Jesus was at the Lord's Supper with the disciples, he introduced a new covenant, right? This is my body, this is my blood. A new covenant he was making that is, that is driven by grace. A covenant of grace made with his own blood. And Jesus fulfilled this law. He fulfilled the Mosaic law. And it's freed us from the penalty of not keeping that law for being lawbreakers. Praise God, right? Like, that's pretty amazing. He's freed us from the penalty of that. But under the law, there was this sign of the covenant, which comes up here, circumcision. And it marked every Jewish man, and it set them apart from all of the Gentiles. And this had been true since basically Abraham, okay? And this has been going on for a long time. And it was unimaginable, if you can imagine this, for a Jew, it was unthinkable for, for them to even eat with uncircumcised people, much less that an uncircumcised person could be accepted by God on equal footing. As a Jewish believer who had this mark, are you with me? That would have been a very difficult pill to swallow for people who were thinking this way. And some wanted to hang on to that sign of the covenant. They wanted to hang on to this bit of the law and add to it grace. Some of your radar is already going up. You see the problem as you've heard. But you need to realize that this is not some trivial issue, okay? The Jews, if, if the Jews insisted that all non-Jews, the Gentiles, were circumcised to be saved. If that was a requirement for salvation, it would have definitely sent the wrong message, right? And it would have destroyed the simplicity and beauty of the gospel. It would have sent the message that Jesus Christ died in vain. If you can be fulfilled by the law, then why did Jesus need to die? Does that make sense? If you can get right standing, if you can be just 
law, then why did Jesus have to die? And so Paul was willing to fight for the purity of the gospel relentlessly. He never let up. He was even willing to suffer for it as well. And so when we get into Galatians, I think that the, the key verse, for me anyway, of this whole book and the heart of what Paul's trying to say is kind of summed up in the first verse of chapter 5. And it's going to be a few weeks before we get there. But I just want to read this to you because I think it's helpful. He says this. He says, for freedom, Christ has set us free. And do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. For freedom, Christ has set you free. Don't submit again to a yoke of slavery. Don't put yourself back under the law. Don't go back to the law and the sin that comes with that. And the central point of today as we're looking at this, and we're going to see a, a difficult argument that, that rose up a conflict between Peter and Paul. These are two headliners of the faith. These are pillars of the faith. These are larger-than-life figures in the New Testament, and they had a disagreement over something that may on the surface seem not that important, but at the root of it was the gospel, and we can learn from this. And, and what I, I want to say is this, that our application of the gospel, all right, needs to be consistent with our acceptance of the gospel. So the way we apply the gospel to our life needs to be consistent with the fact that we've accepted the gospel. You can't affirm the gospel with your lips and then deny it with your life. Do you understand? You can't, you can't affirm the gospel and say we're saved by grace through faith, yet live a life that proclaims it's by grace through the law. Does that make sense? We can't do that. And so we can't say we're free from the law and then act like slaves to the law. We can't do it. So my prayer today as we look at this passage, and there's a lot, so I hope you're ready, but uh, my prayer is that many of us come to discover the absolute incredible joy, the joy and freedom that comes from letting go of the law as a means to attain God's grace, as a means to upgrade our salvation or earn our salvation, to let go of that and begin doing what is superior to that, and that is walking in the spirit. And so we're going to look at that. So in order to get some context, last week we went back to Acts and Acts 13 and 14 is where we get to read the history of what Paul did when he was in Galatia. And so we read the story of what happened in the first city in Antioch and now I want to read what happened through the rest of the way. And so it's a lot of scripture, but I don't know how else to make sense of this unless you know the backstory. So hang on. If you're not one who reads chunks of scripture, then hopefully you can lock in and get this. We'll summarize. But I want you to see the rest of this. So if you want to look in Acts chapter 14 with me, uh, we'll circle back to Galatians in just a second. So they had just left Antioch after proclaiming the gospel. And some of the Jewish religious elite began to follow Paul around and they tried to undo what he did. When he went and proclaimed the gospel, they said, no, the gospel's incomplete. And Paul was like, no, continue in grace. And they were like, no, continue in the law, right? They tried to put them back under the law. God, it's not that easy to be justified is what they wanted to say. You also need to add to your faith this and this and this and basically come back under the law. And they, would, they called it the Judaizers. They came in sort of to plant Judaism back in the minds of these people who were deciding to follow Christ, saying that it needed to be a combination or a return back to the law in general. So they fled Antioch because there were death threats. All right? This is very real. This happens even today. 
Missionaries have to leave different places to prayerfully consider what's next for them. And so they did what Jesus commanded them, and they moved on to the next city. So this is the story of that. It's kind of going west to east. And it says, now in Iconium, they entered together, oh, I'm burning this, into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. Sound familiar? Same thing that happened in Antioch, okay? But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. And this is it. Okay, the city is divided. So when an attempt was made by both Gentile and Jews, with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derby, cities of Lyconia, and to the surrounding counties. And there they continued to preach the gospel. So once again, same thing that happened in Antioch happened in the next city, Iconium. And so now they've gone to Lystra and Derby. So that continues in verse 8. It says, now at Lystra there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. This is a great story. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. And he listened to Paul speaking, and Paul looked intently at him, and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking, praise God. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices. Now, he's a, a bunch of Gentiles. These are not, this is not in Jerusalem. These are a bunch of non-Jewish people trying to figure out what just happened. This is not normal. A dude that has been crippled is suddenly not crippled. He just stood up and started walking around. So they're trying to wrap their head around what happened with this. It says, so they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. All right? They're like, oh my gosh, these, these are gods. So Barnabas, they called Zeus, and Paul, Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. All right? It's like they started beginning to worship them. And the priest of Zeus, all right, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gate and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowd. So even the priest is like, yep, we've been worshiping Zeus, and there he is. Let's start to worship him, right? This is Zeus. He's here. Like, what are we going to do? A dude just started walking. Like, this is crazy. This is not normal. So they start freaking out. Even the priest is on board. So in verse 14, it says, but when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, so they tore their garments, I love this reaction, and rushed out into the crowd. You can see them, they start tearing their clothes, and they're running into the crowd saying, stop, right? They say, men, why are you doing these things? We're also just men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rain. See, this is what we call general grace. It comes to everyone. Even people who don't believe, they're receiving grace uh, that rains from heaven in fruitful seasons, satisfying their hearts in gladness. Isn't that beautiful? These aren't even people who knew about him. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained people from offering sacrifice to them. This was getting out of hand. Verse 19, it says, but Jews, oh, here they come again, came from Antioch and Iconium. And having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul. There had been a threat of this in the previous cities. 
but they actually succeeded here. They stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing he was dead. So the situation is bad enough to where they supposed he was dead. This is not a small event, okay? I can't speak to the severity of it, but they thought he was dead. They were convinced. But the disciples gathered around him, and he rose up <laughs> and entered the city. The same city that just stoned him, he enters that city again. <laughs> this is Paul. He's so stubborn. I love it. You know, it's, it's interesting. This scene always makes me kind of wonder because, you know, this is, I'm not one of those people, so I have absolutely no right to say this, but I heard it said by some missionaries who did have the right to say this, that they were offended that sometimes we say that some countries are closed countries and that we shouldn't send people there because there's danger. And they're like, there are no closed countries to the gospel. How would the Apostle Paul have felt if we felt the place was too dangerous to take the gospel? Anyway, moving on though. So he goes and, and he goes back in the city. And so they finally, I mean, they, they realize what's going on here. It says that when he preached the gospel to the city, made many disciples, he returned to Lystra. He goes, I skipped a verse, excuse me. But they rose up, he entered the city, and the next day he went on to, with Barnabas, to Derbe. And when they had preached the gospel to that city, the fourth one, and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So I felt like it was important to read that huge chunk of scripture and hear that story, one, because it's just engaging, right? It's so cool to see how the church began and how the gospel landed in these places that knew nothing of it. And in moments, there was a movement that began. The gospel is so powerful to change lives. It always has. We're always worried we're going to lose some ground here in America. But can I tell you, God is able to cut through any and every culture at any time and bear fruit with his gospel. He is able to do that. And so we don't need to step back and say, well, how do we edit it? How do we tweak the gospel to make it acceptable and, you know, engaging to these people? It is engaging. It is relevant to them. It is important to them. They need to hear it. We need to say it in a way they can hear us. But we've got to take the gospel to people unedited and present it to them and let God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, do his work of salvation and trust him to do that. We don't need to put too much makeup on the gospel. We just need to put it out there and let God do his thing. It's awesome. So anyway, I read this also because just in, just in case you hear that and you think, you know, okay, uh, what we're about to read, in case you're familiar with the story, you, you have a tendency to sort of look at this, this argument between Peter and Paul. And before you think that this argument over circumcision and how to handle this is just a bunch of theologians getting really grumpy about things and they all just need to eat a Snickers bar and calm down. Uh, they're arguing about this little tiny little thing or that like we like to do on the internet that doesn't really matter and you have a tendency to sort of think well doctrine is man-made it's all the devil and we don't need to worry about that if that's sort of been the deal this is not one of those situations where we're out on the fringe here arguing about something you know weird this was at the very core and the center of the gospel and it was absolutely worth arguing over okay there are times for that and so anyway when we see this I, I, I hope that that you'll, you'll be able to accept this struggle that they had. And so anyway, it may be good advice to dismiss some arguments, but definitely not this one. 
uh, this, and here's the question they're going to be arguing about. I hope you listen to this passage. And the question is simply this. Do Christians who are saved by grace through faith need to add circumcision or any other part of the law, for that matter, to their body to be saved? Now, that's important for them. How do we apply this now in a, in a broader sense? I think what we're going to get out of this is that this question of this is, do Christians who are saved by grace through faith, right? need to also keep the law at any level in order to be saved, okay? And we need to figure this out. So let's read this passage. I know it's a lot of scripture, but it's better than anything I have this day, so I don't feel bad. So let's, let's jump in. So this is the situation that led up to the writing of, of this letter, to be honest. This, we're getting down into past the introduction into why he's writing. So just so you know, I listen, it, it is a lot. I'm going to read all the way through the end of chapter 2. So lock in. There's no better way to explain this than to let Paul do it. This is one cohesive story. This is probably a good reminder to let you know that when Paul wrote this, there were no chapter headings or verse headings. Uh, he wrote this as a letter. So um, in the same way that it's easy to understand somebody's email, if you only read part of it, I think it's, it's just good and responsible for us to see a chunk of it. So uh, try not to let your mind wander. If it does, I'll summarize at the end. But let's, let's lock into what he has. To help you listen, Paul establishes his own credibility, saying that I understand both sides of this. And I also have been affirmed by the apostles. This is what we decided, and now we're having an argument. So, so listen to this as he speaks. This is uh, verse 11. He says, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. And I didn't invent this, what I'm telling you guys. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. He's saying, Jesus gave me this gospel himself. He says, for you've heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persuaded, persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away to Arabia and returned to Damascus. And then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, who is Peter, and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. And what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, he who used to persecute, Paul, he used to persecute the church, he who used to persecute us, is now preaching the faith. He once tried to destroy it. Praise God for that, right? That's some of our story. It's like we were against this whole Christianity thing, but God changed our life. We have to go back to people and be like, sorry, I was wrong. Like, it's a different deal. And that's what Paul has to do here. Anyway, so they glorified God because of him. So in verse uh, 1 of chapter 2. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. And I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, set before them the gospel that I proclaimed among the Gentiles. In order that I might make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. Let me, let me summarize what's happening here. He's saying three years ago, I confirmed this with Peter and James. 
And then later, I've done this again, even with Titus, and I laid out the gospel that God had given me, all right, just to make sure I could get there, they would sign off on it, that we're all on the same page to make sure that I'm, I'm not walking and running in vain, sharing this gospel. So I wanted to make sure that they would sign off and affirm it. And, and the way he says he knows they affirmed it, he says, and Titus, who was a, a Gentile, was with me. And he was not forced to be circumcised, though he was Greek. So the fact that they let Titus go without circumcision uh, speaks to their approval of it. But he says this is when it gets complicated, okay? They had affirmed his gospel, no longer need to be under the law. We can let circumcision go. This is affirmed by Peter and James, the apostles. And it says, but, he said, yet because of false brothers, verse 4, secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom... That we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery, right? They're, they're saying these people are acting too free and they need to be brought back under the law. And Paul says they were wanting to bring them back into slavery to the law. He, he says, I want you to know, guys, we did not yield in submission even for a moment. We stood our ground. Not even for a moment. So that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. He stood against that not to be argumentative. But he knew he needed to stand against that to preserve the gospel for you and I and for others who would hear it. It became a gospel kind of rooted situation. Verse 6, it says, and from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. He says, those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, where he walked through, worked through Peter, for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised, uh, the same one worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Peter and John, who seemed to be pillars, these are Peter, James, and John, the ones that were on you know, the Mount of Transfiguration. These are the inner circle of even the apostles. He's, he, this is a lot of credibility he's saying here. Peter, James, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, and they extended to me the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Isn't that cool? He's saying they affirmed that we no longer needed to have the law. Peter, James, and John, those who walked with Jesus affirmed this. And they only said this. They said only, they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. And so Paul's like, yeah, we're all on the same page. Everybody's in agreement what's happening here, including Peter, that it's just grace. It's grace alone through faith alone for the glory of God alone. That is the gospel we are taking. It's Jesus, okay? But this is when it gets complicated. And I mentioned this at the beginning. We've got to figure out our application of the gospel has to line up with the gospel itself. And it's not just to be, you know, grumpy about things. It's the motivation is to preserve the gospel. That's what Paul's motivation was. You get this? So let's, let's read about this challenge here. It says, but when Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Wow, these are strong words. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. Now let me explain what happened. They've had a gathering here, and you've got some Gentile believers who are already present. And while Peter is there, before the Jewish people show up, he's chumming around with the Gentiles. He's hanging out with the uncircumcised. He's eating with them. He's spending time just laughing at the jokes and enjoying being in a relationship with them, right? He's just, he's fully entered in with that. 
But when James, who was sort of the leader of the church in Jerusalem, shows up with these other Jews, Peter begins to shift how he's behaving. And he begins to draw back from them. This is where we're at. It says, but when they came, he drew back and separated himself. And why? Fearing the circumcision party. How do you think that went over with a guy who just been stoned by the circumcision party? So naturally, Paul kind of bows up on this, right? It says, and the rest of the Jews that were there acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray. And he's led astray not just by a mistake, he's calling it hypocrisy. Those are strong words. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step, their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. We said again, their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. I said to Peter before them all, if you, though a Jew, this is tough, says to Peter, I mean, this is Peter. You don't just say something to Peter in front of all these people, right? Not only is it the fact that he was one of the three, right, who was with him, and you're Paul, who had persecuted the church and just sort of worked your way back in, and your, your, your resume is just a little blemished on the front end, right? And yet you're going to stand up to Peter, sort of the pillar of the church, the one that people really look to and call him out like this. This is bold. He says, Peter, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile, right, you're taking advantage of the freedom that you have, all right, and not like a Jew. So that's how you're living your life. How can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? And Paul calls him on the carpet. He's like, listen, this, this conduct is not a step with the truth of the gospel. And so Paul starts this speech, and we're going to kind of discuss this, and we'll be done. But in verse 15, he says, We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too are found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For though, listen, this is cool. For the law, or through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. What a speech, right? And, and listen, that is so true. And so to, to recap here, Paul explains, he's like, hey, I was a Jew. I was excelling. I was super into it, so much so that I opposed the church, right? And I get where you guys are coming from. I know why you're passionate about the law. I know why you love these things. I know why circumcision means a lot to you. But God has clarified the gospel to me, not through man, but himself. Jesus taught me the gospel. And after years of studying the gospel, my preaching checked out with Peter. It checked out with James. It checked out with John. And they endorsed this gospel that I'm proclaiming. So much so that my buddy Titus here did not have to be circumcised, all right? 
But then in Antioch, when we gathered together, when the Gentiles were there, Peter was acting cool with them. And as soon as the Jews showed up, he started disrespecting the Gentiles and drew back from them, all right? And his attitude completely changed and began to behave like Jews behaved centuries before, where they'd grown up since kids calling Gentiles dogs. He reverted back into the way he thought under the law. Are you with me? And he began to behave that. Why? Fearing the circumcision party. Because what will the religious elite say? And the gospel was distorted. And Paul was like, not today. <laughs> it's not going to happen. We're going to preserve the gospel. And so the first point today, and, and these are going to go quickly because the scriptures already preached the sermon. But so that we can walk away with this, here's the deal. The first point I want you to get is that we must affirm the gospel with our lips and our lives. We must affirm the gospel with our lips and our lives. As I said before, our application of the gospel needs to be consistent with our acceptance of it. And so it's possible for us to affirm the gospel and yet still behave in ways that are not in step with the truth of the gospel. Peter believed in grace, but he feared the, the sour looks and the scowls from those who still believed that they were superior because they were circumcised. It was a point of pride for them that they had been circumcised, and they wanted to hold that over the heads of those who were Gentiles, okay? Now, that was a lifelong habit that they learned, and it was going to take a little bit of time for that residue of the law to scrub off in their life and begin to accept these people the way that God accepted these people. And some still had this belief that if you were saved, then you needed to go ahead and be circumcised and enter into this. But the whole deal was set. It's that there is a new covenant. So Peter, you know, Paul is basically saying, Peter, you believe we're saved by grace, and yet you're behaving as if we're saved under the law because you're afraid of the disapproval of people who held the circumcision as a point of pride in their entire lives. You know, get me on that? I mean, this is a serious issue. And so disagreement over the message of Christ, the gospel, occurred because there was confusion of what it really meant to follow Christ. And, and I want you to think about this. How do we apply this to our lives today? Well, that confusion has remained. There is still confusion about the gospel. If leaders in the early church, just several years after the resurrection of Jesus, could be confused on how we're supposed to walk in grace, not just receive God's grace, then there's definitely going to be disagreement today on how we do that, right? How do we actually walk in this? How do we live out this, this grace that we've been given? And so as we do that, I think it's important that we fight to preserve the gospel, but we need to understand why it happens first. And so the best I can tell you is I think that if we believe the, the gospel of Jesus, this is what we know, our behavior has to be consistent or we'll risk distorting the, the gospel. So why? Right? Why are we tempted to bring the law back into the Christian faith? What's so attractive about bringing the law back, right? In the end, I think it's two things. It's pride and lack of faith. It's pride and lack of faith. These are the two things that lead us to put the law back in the gospel. What do I mean? Well, with pride, I think we want to bring the gospel, uh, the law back into the gospel because it's exciting for us. And some, of, some of us have experienced this. You've been around church very long. You've probably done this like I have. We like to create our little holy perch, <laughs> you know, where we can look down at lesser believers, right? And we can, we can look at them and wonder if they're even believers at all, right? We sort of want to create a second tier of Christianity, and, and we have a, a lot of different ways our brain wraps around that, ways we excuse that way of thinking, and we're just like, well, it's, it's a way. We wouldn't call it pride. We'd call it 
we call it, you know, love for God. But in a sense, when we distort the gospel here, I think pride is the deal because we want to set ourselves above people. And the reason why is we're pointing to something other than the gospel to say, I should be on a perch. Does that make sense? And if I can find a way somewhere to, to leverage the law in order to step up above you guys and look down, I will find a way, right? It's not easy to find people who do that. In fact, I think we've all been guilty of that, right? Um, the other one is lack of faith, and this is, this is crucial. It's when we say, I'm not willing to trust. It starts off seeing really, it feels really holy at first. But we say, well, I'm not completely willing to put all my trust in grace alone because that just sounds too good to be true. So I will sort of make sure to have my bases covered. There's going to be a backup plan in case God factors work into this somehow. Like when I show up, if he's like, you mostly got it, but there was this one thing. So I want to make sure that I don't miss anything. So I, you know. I just am not sure if I can really trust him. That final judgment seems pretty serious. So I'm not, you know, I'm going to sort of maybe do both. If that's okay with all of you guys, you know. And I think the problem with that is that it that might sound good, but that sentiment begins to spread like weeds. And it begins to spread through and corrupts the gospel in the people around us. That's why, that's why Paul was, was opposed Peter. He was worried about the people around him as well. And the, the desire is good. You want to be accepted by God. That's, that's a great thing. But you're going to have to trust the word of God and the word of Jesus and the word that we get through the New Testament. That it is, you are, you are made holy through Jesus by grace, through faith, not of works, for the glory of God alone. You're going to have to trust that. That's what the gospel is all about. If you're trusting that mostly and want to tack works onto it, you're going to miss it. You're going to miss it. And your whole focus is going to shift towards your works. And you're going to be just spinning like a hamster trying to fix all of that. Meanwhile, you'll have missed the incredible beauty and glory of the grace of God. If you try and co combine, you corrupt. You can't have it both ways. We are saved by grace through faith. Now, let me say this. Every time we obey God, I believe it delights his heart. It says that throughout scripture so many different times. I don't want to downgrade that in any way. That's one of the ditches we can slide off into when we, when we proclaim the gospel of grace. It, I, it says it straight up. God loves it when we are obedient to him, we walk in his ways. It delights him, right? That's exactly the word it uses. But he alone obeyed the law. He alone fulfilled the law, not you. And your only hope is through him for your salvation. You got me? Your only hope is through him. So God does delight in obedience, and we should pursue that, not for the same reasons as we would if we thought that it was grace and, right, grace and the law. So Peter, believing, this is the thing, this is the example that he gives. Peter believed the gospel. He affirmed it. He's trying to look good in front of men, and his peers want to look good, all right? I follow the ritual laws, and obviously Paul opposes him. And we get this, that Paul says in Romans 14, 23, he says that eating or not eating food offered to idols is not the point. It's not acting out of faith that qualifies something as sin. It's a faith issue. So they're doubting and moving into that. That's a serious thing. We can't believe one thing, the gospel, and then impose laws and rules on ourselves and others that are not part of that, that are not part of justification. And so why are we still talking about this? And I think this is important. And I'm going to just list these. And if you want to know more, you can, we can talk later. But 
There are people that still say in order to be saved, you have to be baptized by water. And until that moment, if you're not baptized by water, that you are not justified before God until that moment happens. There, there are people for a number of different reasons, and there are a lot of different words that we twist uh, in order to say that you're not saved until you behave at least as good as I do, right? And we create another list, and we say this is why, and all these other things, and yes, uh, God transforms us, but those are a result of salvation. They're not the way that we earn salvation. Are you with me in this? Some still say this, and not, not all people who speak in tongues do this. I don't want to throw anybody under the bus, but there is a sect of people who do that and say, that is a sign that you're saved. And until you do speak in tongues, you're not actually saved. There's some that would go that far. There's some that say you're not saved unless you're a part of this specific denomination. Some would say you're not saved unless the pastor is preaching out of the King James Version. Some are more subtle. Some are more subtle, but they're still real, okay? The gospel lays us bare. There's no room for man to receive glory in his salvation. We've been saved by grace alone. You with me? There's nothing to do with us. So once again, the gospel, this is important, hear me on this, does not promote licentious living. Put this up because this is, this is important. I want you to be able to see this. And I carefully wrote this out because I want you to get this. The gospel does not promote licentious living, lawless living, or legalism. God is delighted in good works. He hates sin enough to send Jesus to die in our place. We know that. But the gospel simply pro proclaims that better behavior can't fix what's wrong with you. <laughs> it never discourages our desire for holiness. It clarifies our motivation and places our hope and transformation in Christ, not in our strength or willpower. Do you hear me on this? This is key. And so finally, we don't have time to get into this. This is really where we're going with the rest of the book. But walking as a Christian by the written code of the law is inferior to walking in the spirit. Walking by the written code is inferior to walking by the spirit. There's so much good that came from the law, which we'll look into when we study Galatians chapter 3. We're not trying to throw the law under the bus. It had its role, three different roles that it played. Also, it's one tremendous misuse, which we'll talk about. But here's the deal. It's inferior to walking in the spirit. We died to the law. Paul uses a, a marriage example, all right, in Romans. He says this. He says, now we're released from the law, having died to that which held us captive. Like if a man dies, he's released from the law of marriage, right? And he's able to receive another. And that's what's happened here. And I'm skipping through this. You can find this in Romans 7, 4 through 6. But it's, in the end, it says, but now we're released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. We serve in a new way through the Spirit of God working in us. And listen, it is so much better than trying to keep the letter of the law. It is so much better, which is why Paul writes in the very next verse, I've been crucified with Christ, therefore I no longer live, but it's Christ who is living in me. And this life that I'm living in, this body, in this flesh, I live by faith, right? Not works, I live by faith in the Son of God. And I can live by faith because he loved me and he proved it by giving himself for me. I have joy and confidence in that. And he's saying, I'm walking in a whole different way. I want to throw the gospel under the bus. I want my conduct to be in step with the truth of the gospel because we're no longer bound to the law anymore. Christ fulfilled that law and has given us that as a gift of righteousness and forgiveness of all our sin before God. By his grace through faith, we receive that. Amen? 
It's awesome. And so we're invited to do what it says in Galatians 5. We don't have time to get there, but it says, but I say, walk in the Spirit. Walk in the Spirit, and you won't gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desire of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. It, hey, walking in the Spirit is superior to walking by the letter of the law. You walk by the letter of the law, you're always going to have one eye on the law. But when we walk by the Spirit, it's not external from us. It's totally different. Suddenly, we die. And we are dwelled by Christ in us. And we, it's complicated, we'll get into it later, but we are crucified with him. And we are also raised with him. We died to the law and have made alive to Christ. And he puts his Holy Spirit in us and leads us to live an entirely different life. The same grace that forgives us and it's ridiculous, incredible, amazing power is the very same grace that not only changes our motivation, but it's beyond just motivation. It's not just now you're grateful so you don't sin. It's even past that. It is that you literally have a very real power inside of you. His name is the Holy Spirit, and he is working in you. He's crying out, Abba, Father, even now, and he is causing you to become like his son. He is fueling that. He is calling you toward himself. He's providing gas for you to do that. He's fueling it and leading you as he draws you to himself, not for your glory, but for his. And that is the gospel we stand in. That is the grace that we've received. And it gives us confidence to go out and share the gospel with people with a little bit of willpower and a people with a lot of willpower in both places. They all need Jesus. And we can take the grace of God to people who desperately need it and say, it doesn't matter how long you've been stuck in that sin. That I don't have to look at your character and your life and your track record to wonder if you're able to be free from this. No, the gospel is that Christ comes in you and by his grace changes you, forgives you, and empowers you to live an entirely different kind of life that you had no shot of living on your own. That's the gospel. It's awesome. This is what we celebrate. If you guys want to come up, we're going we're gonna to end here. But here's the, here's the bottom line. If you have been walking and you've been combining anything, we looked at circumcision here, but if you've been combining anything Anything in your relationship with God, one eye on the law, then I want you to know this, that we no longer live in view of the law, but Romans 12, 1 says this, I live, he said, I live in view of God's mercy, he said, in view of God's mercy, right, we're always looking at that grace, right, it's awesome, in view of God's mercy, mercy, I offer my body as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, and we can do this with joy. Because he has died for us. If you desire salvation by this God, come to him. And by faith, receive his grace. Believe on Jesus Christ, who has made a way for your salvation. If you're a Christian and you need to continue in grace, and you realize you've got a combo thing going on, and you're ready to surrender that, surrender your pride, surrender your fear, and say, I just want to walk in grace, a new joy, and a new empowerment. That will lead to holiness. It will. It will. Grace is going to do that. That's what happens. You don't have to fear. Well, I don't know. I'll lose my motivation to stop sinning. Oh, no. Oh, no. We'll get there. You don't have to fear. Let's, let's pray. If you would stand your feet, we're going to sing one song. We're going to be done. Thank you for tuning in. It's a lot of scripture today. But God, we come before you. 
I pray if there's anyone here who does not have a relationship with you, who came in here thinking, I'm going to get a bit of religion so I can leave here and maybe God will be pleased with how I'm living. He'll be excited I went to church and he'll give me a high five and maybe that'll be okay. I'll get to tell him when I see him face to face when I die that I went to church that time. Maybe that was your thing. I pray that, God, you would show those, those that are struggled with that, that you've done all the work. That they'll just say, I, I can't and you can. I couldn't, but you already did. Give you their life and by faith trust you for forgiveness and freedom. And you will fill them with Jesus. Make them your kids. And fill their life with newness and power and glory. And God, those of us who are believers, help us never to take a single step past that. God, we pray that your will be done in your church in Jesus' name. Amen. We want to thank you one more time for taking the time to listen to these messages that God's provided our fellowship. We believe he's doing something special among us and would love for you to be a part of it. We hope that you'll take the time to come and visit us in person someday soon. And we invite you to visit our website, covenantcommunitylj.com. There you'll find information on how to contact us if you have a prayer request or if there's a specific way we can minister to you and your family. Until then, God bless you.